This episode of Table Talk is sponsored by J Food O, dedicated to sharing the best Japan has to offer. Over the next few months, J Food O and a selection of London restaurants will create seafood and sake pairings for spectator listeners to help develop your knowledge and enjoyment of the drink. The pairing will focus on the concept of umami, which in Japanese means the essence of deliciousness. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Michael Heath. Michael is a cartoonist and illustrator. His first cartoon in The Spectator was published in 1957. His first cover illustration first appeared in 1964. And he has been cartoon editor since 1991. His work has appeared in numerous British publications, including Punch, The Evening Standard, The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The Mail on Sunday and Private Eye. All his work is simply signed as Heath. Michael, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you very much. It stops me drawing. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, I'd be at it night and day. Michael, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? Do you know, I can't remember a thing about it. it the rationing was on. I mean, so it was about 1935, so I mean, the war started soon after. What I remember about sweets is that when the Americans came over here in 1944, they threw all their sweets at us because I had loads of stuff given to them in little packages every day, all the food they wanted, even fried eggs, for God's sake. It's difficult to believe. But they threw chewing gum at us and all that. Chewing gum was a difficult thing to get hold of. Old men used to come up and offer you a stick of gum and then try to do things to you. So you soon learnt to uh, say, no, thank you very much. I don't like chewing gum. Sweets, no. I don't remember much of that at, uh, at all, really. And what about at home... With your parents? Who who did the cooking at home? <laughs> oh, God almighty. Well, I suppose absolutely my mother. I mean, the thing is, you didn't, go, you didn't uh, do anything but that. There was this rule about getting up, going out, and coming out to lunch or whatever, or it, it was very controlled. What You, you know, you, he's having tea now and, or whatever. Supper didn't seem to come into it, and certainly drink didn't. But no, we were all, we all ate together and... Uh, Try to ignore the bombs going off in Hampstead, which I was in. Mm. And what about meal times? What were they like? Well, I mean, just in my time, silent. I mean, it came quite as a surprise to me that people talked to each other <laughs> while they were eating or anything like that. So it wasn't, it just grab it and have it. And uh, we'd lift off porridge and various bits and pieces of stuff and bread. Uh, no sweets, of course, hence I've got dentures now. But that, but that is a joke, but not a very good one. But I mean, the thing is that sweets we didn't have, and uh, as I say, except chewing gum from American soldiers or whatever, sweets were rationed anyway in those days. So uh, you couldn't have more than two ounces of fruit gums or whatever it is. You had to uh, do without it. Hence, uh, uh, all my teeth fell out. <laughs> Dentistry wasn't really invented then. I mean, a few people hid it, did it, and all the rest of it, and had didn't have the complex things done to their teeth that they can do to you now, replace them, and all the rest of it, and screw it. So if you look, we were well known for our bad teeth. Mm. The dentists who used to come to the occasional schools I went to would come. We'd all leave by the back door. Nobody had, <laughs> nobody wanted to have their teeth scraped or anything like that. So. We grew up with dodgy teeth. 
And you mentioned school food, your school rather. What was school food like? Oh, gosh, you know, I don't remember. Certainly the places I went to and various schools, for starting in Devon in 1939 or something, I was sent to various schools around there, but not because of um, they were going to teach me anything. They just um, sat and read books or something and gave us comics to read, and that's all. Nobody tried to teach us to spell uh, or write. Uh, we made our own amusement somehow or other, and we every now and then someone would do something naughty, and the teacher, who an old man always, because uh, all the young men had gone to uh, gone to the war. So I did then what I do now. I mean, I used my initiative and ran around all over the place and looked for this and looked for that and tried to amuse people, I suppose. But I mean. I do not remember it in all the three places I was in, except the last place, I suppose, was Hoban, being bombed. I mean, I, saw, I was bombed in 1939, cannon fired two on the beach, and uh, we had to get through the barbed wire to get to the shore. And um, the, I, again, I wasn't frightened of all this. I, I remember sitting on the beach anyway and looking out at sea. There were two aeroplanes coming towards us. It was a place called Tor Cross, and um, there were two other. This is landmines all over the place, and we just sat there because it was a lovely hot day, or I did, I was the only one there, apart from two soldiers. And they said, Oh, look, they're ours, meaning they weren't German. Um, and they weren't, they were German, <laughs> and they split up and cannon fired us all and uh, dropped a mine on the, one of the houses and blew one of the old ladies out through the window. And set the water up, water business up and we again got on with it then I mean I mean, did go to the school later in the day and everyone was just talking about that I mean we, fear didn't come into it I, I feel uh, I, I used to see a lot of people crying and things like that um, my mother perhaps more than my father obviously but Fear wasn't one of the things. It was rather a thrill. And again, when we went to Hampstead and lived there in a flat, Hampstead in those days was a charming area and with cheap, affordable flats and houses. And um, my father, who drew for comics, a comic called Radio Fun and another one called Film Fun, he hated the job and it was working very hard and all the rest of it. And what I'm doing exactly now, actually, because I thought I'd never be like him, because he was stuck with comics and uh, boys' stories and things like that, and he hated every minute of it. But he became a guard at night. He'd have to stay up half the night or most of the night, keeping an eye on what's going or coming across from Germany and coming to bomb us. You could see the centre of London by the flames and things like that. And we all thought, I think, we, you know, we'd go out in the morning and look for shrapnel and collect that. And then one, and there was a thing they used to do to, oh, I'm trying to avoid another word, but the thing is that um, they taught them how to deal with incendiary bombs. And they, you had to go into a little brick building and they sent these incendiary bombs off and uh, you had to put them out. Well, that, all incendiary rounds were tricks. I mean, there were different things, and they all went for a different reason. They blew up for another reason. If you put water on them, they blew up, and if you went to the wrong end of it with a water hose, that went wrong too and exploded in front of you, and that was very difficult. But, however, I got the hang of that, and uh, my father and 
asked me to take them down to a pub in Hampstead. And there's Spaniards in, I said. And I carried them down like milk bottles. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's rather thrilling. I had a friend or two like that. We all did it. And we all went down to this pub's basement and piled them up. And, and, and I remember going down there and an old lady saw me and fainted. Because I was, you know, I said, what's wrong with her? You know, she's terrified. I was going to drop one and blow us all up. Well, I suppose that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Then there, was the collect- then there was the collection of shrapnel, which is terribly exciting. I mean, you'd get a bit of shrapnel written, written on it as, you know, Berlin, 1941 or something like that. You'd collect all that and swap it. That was, but no toys. Tell us about when you left home to pursue your career. <laughs> were you... Were you what were you eating at that time in your life? Were you were you a dazzling cook or living hand to mouth? <laughs> I don't know. I was living in another house by then in Brighton. Brighton then was the most fantastic place on earth. Everybody that was um, let out of the army and all the rest of it, all, were all resting there. And it was full of uh, all Americans and English and uh, Canadians and all the rest of it. And they used to get uproariously drunk all the time because they were bored stiff and often broke into hotels and unscrewed all the bath equipment and threw it off the roof. But I thought it terribly thrilling, and I got a friend whose father ran a pub. So I often helped out in the pub a bit, carrying stuff. And in another place uh, called the Burles Club, which was a club for, as it says, uh, naughty people. And I got money there for working in the billiard hall that they had, and I'd be given a shilling to go out to get packed sandwiches. There, I I just met all these people. I came across things I'd never even dreamed of before. And the sort of people that were in these afternoon drinking clubs, and in the evening, of course, but I wasn't there in the evening. And I met, you know, and that was introduced to all sorts of peculiar women, all prostitutes. They were very sweet to me. And um, one one of them said to me, you're, the way you're talking, you're gonna get yourself into trouble one day, darling. Would you go out and get me this record? A 78, of course. I said. And she, and I went and got this record. And it's called, It's My Mother's Birthday Today. I'm on my way with a lovely bouquet. And through that and all the people I'd met, music hall people, but there was a, hippot- a place called the Hippotrope around the corner, which was a big music hall. And I used to go in there. And music hall in those days was... The, uh, the acts came on, did their 10 minutes, and then came off. And then another one would come off. Uh, everyone was in hysterics and having great fun, and it seemed terrific. Max Miller was the funniest man on earth. And he had a way of suggesting things going on sexually and all the rest of it. Hello, darling, you know, and all that. But he wasn't cottony. He was, I don't know what he was, but anyway, he was fascinating. I thought he was terrific. And through him and various other strange people, I found out, Lots of strange things, C- criminals, for instance, and uh, women working. And, uh, and I knew uh, two girls who were identical, who lived with one man, and uh, <laughs> that seemed to suit them, and suited him. Um, people on the run from the police and uh, uh, were hiding in various places. So they didn't want to be arrested. And again, they—that was—I thought that was fun. And some of the guys over there, again criminal, would be on the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary. We're talking about 1945, I think, 46. And they'd work as stewards. And they'd go to America and buy 
clothes, which we couldn't get here. You couldn't get fancy anything. Everything was boring. Clothes were boring. Uh, you couldn't get, like, coloured socks or anything. And they'd come back with second-hand American gear, which we went mental for. And, um, I, you know, you'd exchange anything you had for it. And I remember giving them a, an encyclopedia or something for a pair of socks or something which were coloured. And, and, and there was an excitement of getting something you didn't have. And uh, it was uh, to say it was fun would not be an exaggeration, but remember, I'm only 12 years old, right? But I met a lot of people, which I was going to meet later on, similar people in London, in Soho. And I then, by then, was old enough to be drunk and, uh, and uh, get on very well with famous drunk people who were fascinating. Well, Michael, tell us about that time, because obviously you're known as one of the kind of key characters from that Soho crowd, along with Jeffrey Bernard oh, and yes. various others like that. What, what was it like in kind of that period of your life? Was it, was it a very heavy kind of drinking culture? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Often a glass of wine went down. Everyone was paralytic. And there were people who ran it. I mean, it made Soho what it was. Francis Bacon and Jeffrey Bernard. Francis Bacon pretended to be drunk often, but he got other people drunk and uh, pretended to be drinking champagne that he'd bought. No one was allowed to buy him a drink. And everyone was tanked. And Geoffrey drank morning, noon and night. And I sort of managed to get jokes done and draw for Punch magazine and things like that. And you'd be surprised that at the time there was a Sunday paper called the Woman's Sunday Mirror, which taught women to cook and various things. And I did a strip for them called Nelly Noel. And they said, make do with those old shoes that they were worn out. You know, you can put paper in them and <laughs> giving sound advice. And, and uh, I, I did that at £10 a time. It was, it was great fun. But Geoffrey, I, well, I took to enormously. And uh, he was very, very, very dangerous. And he was so rude. I found that a lot of men I've come across who are so rude to women often get on very well with them. Or the girls come back for more. And... Uh, he could, you wouldn't go, if you were going to marry Geoffrey, which several did, it meant that you weren't going anywhere. You weren't going to a theatre, you weren't going to a cinema, you probably weren't going to a restaurant. You were going to the Coach and Horses or the French in Soho from morning, noon, and night and breakfast. <laughs> and they'd, just, it, they'd have to stand there and you, you know, you'd try to warn them, you know, you really think you should marry him, you know, because he's a nightmare. And, uh, they did. He was original and he was very funny and I suppose he was scared most of the time, though he'd never admit it. He was horse riding mad. No, he didn't ride horse, he was betting horse. He was a he took bets, which he shouldn't do in a pub. And he ended up we ended up in court and they let him off. They were fun and life was odd and dangerous and strange and the people were very, very varied, right? Most people have had some sort of education or they'd been in private school or college or whatever like that. Invariably, they were all gay. And they'd been to, you know, through terrible things in the war. That many of them had been in you know, troop ships that had sunk, and they'd somehow survived it and left it. And uh, they were sort of good people to meet, funny and original and all the rest of it. The trouble was, not that I thought it was trouble at the time, you had to drink with them, which is whiskey. And uh, they would line up at the bar, and I, 11 o'clock in the morning, and Jeffrey in one corner, coffee girls lung up. And uh, 
he'd order the drinks and he wouldn't pay for them. The landlord took the money from us. But uh, it would just be amazing. He wouldn't say anything. He can't all his funny things that have happened to him. And it was sort of outrageous the things he got away with and said. And I worked with him on a play he wrote called Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell. I did drawings for it. By that I mean for stage. It was, it was not just large pieces of card. And I did the drawing. And Peter O'Toole came on and did his bit. Peter O'Toole was the first one to do Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell. And Peter O'Toole by then was so sober. But up to that point, he'd been drunk like all the others all the time. And Jeffrey was very soppy in some ways, but he liked to be patted on the head and all this. But he was terribly proud about this play, Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell, written by Keith Waterhouse. And every night he'd go into the Wyndham's or whatever it is, or the theatre it was on, and sit by the bar, because he liked to hear people coming to the bar in the middle of the day. And uh, they'd say, oh, it's marvellous, isn't it? I thought it was so funny when Jeffrey Bernard was, you know, and uh, he thought that was good, so he thought that. And one day he went in there and sat down, and then, Dorman had changed, and it was someone else who looked after him. And the man said, "Oi, you out? You're no good. You're rubbish." You know. And he said, "You are you talking to you asterisk asterisk asterisk?" He said, "You know, you're Jeffrey Bernard, aren't you, or something like that?" He said, "Yes." He said, "No, you're not. Jeffrey Bernard's up on stage." <laughs> <laughs> And so on and so on, and, and and so it went. How I did all the work I did, I really don't know. But I could work well drunk. Did people eat anything at this time? Eat? Yeah, was food a thing? No, I mean, eating was something you just, is a sideline, the sort of thing that you'd had to do. You'd been told it by a doctor, and I said, you must get something down that, down your screech, as they call it. Uh, I did not belong to the crowd that went with with the Bernard and eat oysters. He would like that and eat that. But no, food wasn't the main thing in my circle at all. No, that I, it's all a bit of a mystery to me what I did and what I didn't eat. I wouldn't know about that. For a time, I was living in Brighton, so I was on the train at night. I get the seven o'clock down, and trains that train had a bar on it. And people were drunk when they got on the train, and they'd been drinking since they got on the train, getting up at 7.30, and they were going back to their wives. You know, and it's amazing, miniatures in every pocket. And during that time, what was your drink of choice? What were you personally drinking? I drank because they drank whiskey. I drank whiskey. I, it seemed to be all right. I could handle it, just shouting at people, I suppose. But I don't know. Whiskey seemed to be the, the drink of choice, unless you drank champagne, which I don't like. Um, Michael, what about your cartooning? How important is food and drink as a subject for cartoons? I know a lot of your cartoons often have have it as a, as a subject. <laughs> You've got the wrong guy here. I'm not a gourmet in any way. Uh, <laughs> no, but it does feature a lot in, in uh, cartoons. I, what, what you asked, asked me earlier about food. Um, the earliest memory I had of food was being going to a fish and chip shop, which then you let them out of newsprint, newspapers and all the rest of it, and that was okay. I thought that was fine, and it was thruppence or something. So uh, that was good. So I suppose I existed on that, and whatever else was thrown at me. I mean, I, I, I just do not remember. Mm. No, but sorry, more more as a subject matter, like in your actual cartoons oh, that you the, draw. I do. You I often just, do. I do. Well, I just look up stuff and the table and manners and all the rest of it, and I look up, and I know the sort of people who are eating them and things like that, and I do that, and I put it try and get the right knife and fork, uh, <laughs> things like that. Yes, uh, but I, I specialise in drawing people as they look, 
um, and the changing of their clothes and all the rest of it and how they dressed in the old days and how you could be, you know, in the 50s and all the rest of it, it would be a waistcoat, not that I did that, but I mean, it, suits, you know where you are with suits. I even did a strip about suits, it was in Private Eye. Was probably killed by the editor who shot everything I did. So <laughs> he's not funny. So I left it at that and went off to somewhere else. But food was something the middle class did or upper class. And eating out was very unusual, although I did it occasionally. But I then sort of I was a bit uneasy, I think, about sitting around people, which is the right knife and fork, and do you eat out of your hands or something, and when do you drink and all that. Yeah, but it's a very it's quite a business now because never now then most restaurants you go to was shouting or falling over and all the rest of it so, but in those days it could be quite an ordeal you know you could be kicked out of as being a hurrah for using the wrong fork but that it was never much in my life that uh, my, my chewing gum is more my game I think <laughs> you've got the wrong guy for call me but Whiskey takes away your, you don't need to eat with whiskey. It you know, seems to be able to get away with it. Mm. And keep awake, I mean, that's the best one. And what is comfort food for you, Michael? Good God, <laughs> I've been married three times, I have no idea. I, 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 um, I found myself in many situations, usually alone and looking after myself. I found that sort of okay, but that was pretty awful, really. You know, I just grab something in some shop and take it home and cry. I didn't uh, eat properly at all. I drank still then. I said, I should be dead, I suppose. And maybe I am, and this is a nightmare, but I think it's... <laughs> I it's, 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 uh, it, it, uh, no, there was no... Um, I mean, I'm not going to ask a piece of fresh uh, and things like that. <laughs> you know, I'll scout me out. I, uh, <laughs> not for me, I couldn't eat another thing. So as we didn't have it and brought up without it, we didn't get corpulent and we didn't have a craving for food, as you call it, I mean, upper middle class eating and like that. But it, it didn't come into our lives. It was very secondary. Like toys, we couldn't get those. And clothes, we couldn't get them. So you came up without a lot of... And also, you, you kept in your... When you were young, uh, I'd say 12 or whatever it is like that and younger... You had to watch what you said to people, because otherwise you get a thick ear. A thick ear, by the way, is when they hit you around the head. But I mean, the thing is that you can't, you couldn't say, you couldn't walk around as you could now as they go around saying, <laughs> uh, you couldn't do that. Someone would come up and go, bosh, <laughs> you'd have had it. But uh, you had, if you were lucky, I suppose, you had one pair of trousers, long, one suit, possibly, and a jumper. And I had friends, I in the early years, who were stitched into their clothes, and they were about six years old, and they were stitched into their clothes at the beginning of winter and didn't come out of them until May. That's the It saved a lot of money and all the rest of it. But you weren't, you had realised that we didn't have any luxuries, as you call them. There wasn't that. And that's why we're all slim and dancing around and all the rest of it. We didn't have chocolate. I said it earlier about the stuff that now makes people fat, they eat chunks of it all the time and never stop they can talk on the phone and eat at the same time and usually do so that they don't understand why they end up at 20 stone but um that i suppose i didn't realize it would probably save my life 
So, so fasting quite a bit and running around and being chased by policemen, or old men in my cases. I could have made a fortune, but old men following me around and off me sixpence and take you into the cinema, which you couldn't get in on your own because you were too young. So they sit next to you and start fumbling with your knee, and then you were off, you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and that was, again, taken for granted. I remember going into the cinema when it was empty, uh, early in the evening, I suppose. I, mean, I sat down in the corner, I was the only one there at the back, and an old man, I say old man, a man came through the door at the bottom where the gents are and walked all the way around and sit next to me and put his knee on. You'd be, I'm sure you're aware of such things going on even <laughs> now. And I just said, you know, got up and said something. <laughs> a friend of mine who was learning to smoke, well, I say learning, he was smoking, I didn't. And uh, he stubbed his cigarette out on the back of the hand. <laughs> and the lights went up, and this man's going, ah! <laughs> so, um, that sort of thing, yes. And Michael, what about now? Your wife, Hilary, is involved with the French house in Soho. Are you still in touch with the scene in Soho? Do you still go to Soho much? Well, I do. I was there last night, but I don't, I don't know anyone there much anymore because they're all dead or mad or shot themselves, so I don't have many people to go there. Conversation is any, with any pub in Soho is almost impossible. You have to bellow at each other. And uh, But I certainly have... I'm my, my wife works behind the counters, and... Uh, she knows more than I do. I find them rather boring. You know, I, what do you do, you know, for a living? You know, I'm a cartoonist. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, I just thought that um, Soho to me wasn't eating. I'm looking back at it and looking in magazines and seeing stuff that was being sold and how much it cost. It must have been lovely there because the proper restaurants and proper Italian people and families and cooking and everything. It was heaven on earth. I didn't know about that. And now it's awful. I mean, the food is, you know, pretty nightmarish. And you're given about 10 minutes to finish and get out. It's charmless. The people are charmless. The noise is impossible. They only listen to... Uh, 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 and they, uh, they've got that, but they don't. No, they've got their earphones and all the rest of it. But I find the social life is just dire. I mean, just, as far as I'm concerned, it's not because I got all this rubbish in my head, which is coming out now a bit. So you'd have to hold me in down because the thing is that the people I knew, intelligent people, who were in some way wrong or got wrong or come right, done life is terrible things to them but they were all intelligent people invariably you know as i said they all had these <laughs> had a you know a good education and all the rest of it and perhaps they were army and sergeants and soldiers and all. so but now it would be impossible absolutely impossible for oscar wilde to live because oscar everything he said is written down isn't it still uh, never trust a man who runs off with your shoes and that you, you, they was that? I said it's pretty dreadful. You know, life is you know either you're looking up at the stars or down in the gutter. Eh? What? That's all you get. They don't know anything, so they're quite happy. The girls they go up with don't know anything either. So that they do that for a time. Then of course they want children, but after after that point they could all do whatever they want. But they don't want to do anything intellectual. Uh, anything that requires effort or skill. I apologise to all of them out there. For, I'm sure they're full of skill and understanding and deeply wonderful at home, but uh, Oscar would not have taken <laughs> to it much at all. In fact, he would have, I don't know about his drinking habits. He was pretty 
strongest, but mostly champagne, but I don't think he was an alcoholic in that way. But no, you, there's no way anybody could hear you if you came up with anything witty or anything like that. I'll write that down. Oh, right. Why <laughs> 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 don't you piss off? Dan Farson, rudest man in the world. He's he an alcoholic. He'd been banned from every pub in Cornwall and Devon. And he, <laughs> he'd come into the coach room, or you'd see him in the morning, and he'd say, he did television programs. He had he's an interviewer, and very intelligent. He'd say, "Oh, hello, Michael. Lovely to see you. Marvelous drawing I saw the other day of yours in Everybody magazine or something like that." I said, "Oh, thanks very much, Mikey." And you see him in the evening. He'd be totally. He said, "I loathe you. Everything about me makes you sick. You're rubbish. <laughs> you can't draw. You can't paint." <laughs> and a lot of people gave you that, and you had to. Steal yourself, you know. Uh, Franz Bacon would say terrible things to you, you know. Like, oh, sir, I can't say them now, what he'd say to you. I mean, he was always being introduced to me, and I didn't want to know him because he was a dangerous man uh, and had various dodgy things going on. And I, mean, I really wouldn't go into it, but things with his paintings and all the rest of it. I had an agent, and I said, he's earning a lot of money then. And I could have bought one. I asked him once, and nervously, and it cost me £24,000, and now it'll be 20, 20 million or something like that. But uh, the guy that was running the colony room, which I drank in a lot in the evenings, everyone would go around, it was rather like being in a Western or something, and word would go around that Francis is turning up, he's going to be in the pub, and a lot of people thought that was great because it was free drinks. And he'd come up and he'd say, hello, you, you know, oh, God. And um, could I swear on this? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, the, the Ian Board, uh, the alcoholic who ran the pub, he had a nose, this huge red thing like that. He said, oh, I haven't eaten for three days. <laughs> and uh, he drank brandy and things like that and just lived off it. He was outrageous. And he kept on introducing me, knowing I know, knowing that he knew that I knew that I didn't want to talk to him. And he introduced me every time. He'd say, Francis, I want you to meet another artist. <laughs> you know, he said, oh. Francis Bacon says, really? What's he doing? He said, he said, artist, isn't, aren't you Mark or whatever? Or, or, or Amsterdam, they call me a very funny R, Amsterdam, get it? So he, <laughs> says, he says, oh, and what sort of drawings do you do? And I was standing in front of him, backing away slowly, you know, because I knew he was going to slaughter me. And so he said, oh, no, Carty's very important nowadays or any time, you know, the way people dress and look and what they say is very important in history and all that. And I said, Oh, <laughs> backing off. And I said, thank you very much, very nice. And he, took to, he then turned to his friend and said, who was that cunt? <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we, um, we normally finish, Michael, with the question about what your desert island meal would be. What would your desert island meal be? If you had to choose a last meal, what would you go for? Oh, for God's sake. Impossible. Prunes. No, I... I, I don't know. <laughs> what would be my last meal? I'm very keen on sardines. Come on, we can do better than that. Uh, I, 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 I guess, going back to the beginning, you were told to eat up what you have. 
No, I can't eat that. I can't watching a bird on television killing a fella with a hammer. See, they don't. They told what to eat, right? So you eat whatever rubbish you were given, and you mustn't leave that plate clean, otherwise you get whacking. So I don't have anything. It could be a Mars bar. I'm very keen on. I'm very keen on scrambled eggs. The things I when I was on my own a lot, I feeding feeding myself, which is pretty dangerous. I mean, given the fact that I was drinking the amount I was drinking and working and being alone and missing my children, I missed them when they were taken away from me. Otherwise, I got sad about that. But as for eating, especially, I had a nice piece of place. I think would be nice. And I, I like fish. If that's of any interest to anybody, and. Uh, that's about it. I, I'm, not, I'm not an eater. I was not brought up to be an eater. I know nothing. In fact, I suffered, uh, not anymore, but I've heard many years ago about not being able to know what to say to a waiter or something like that, who in those days could be snotty. Nowadays, they just say, what do you want? You don't get any, you know, that, there's not that middle class, upper middle class thing about saying the right thing, getting up the right way and talking about the right thing and eating the right thing and boring away they are. That's something I don't miss from that period. I, I think it's very boring. And what, what would your last drink be? I'll tell you, I've got one here. I'll have a drink here. I'll have another with you today. Uh, I haven't got any money, but you can buy me one, you bastard. Uh, you, uh, yeah. White wine, I guess. It's less, I mean, you can drink it like water, unfortunately. It does kill you, but so what? I hate whiskey used to be my favourite. I used to like that, but I think there's a limit to what you can do with whiskey. You know, it does terrible things to you. You can say it allows you to say terrible things to people. You know, it's almost psychiatric. I mean, it leads people to relieve themselves from misery and unhappiness and uh, an unhappy marriage or whatever it is. Unfortunately, you know, people start. They loosen up and saying all the truth. Then you mustn't tell the truth uh, most of the time. You mustn't even say, oh, they are marvellous. Um, so that's it. But uh, white wine seems to be safe to my ear. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. Oh, thank you very much for asking me to go to Table Talk. And it was very sweet of you to ask me. And I have a nice glass of wine. Your next record is... <laughs> Thank you for joining us on The Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. <laughs> <laughs>